we um, we have a guest uh, preacher uh, today, which we um, which we, we are excited uh, about. That Aaron is here. Aaron uh, Nequist. He is a uh, liturgist, a writer. He's a pastor. Um, after leading at uh, leading worship at Mars Hill Church in Grand Rapids, and then Willow Creek Church in the suburbs of Chicago, Aaron has created a collection of of modern liturgical worship recordings entitled "A New Liturgy." Um, he then curated a discipleship-focused and formational ecumenical practice-based community at Willow Creek called The Practice. That was a mouthful, but at the end of it, it's to say, how do we point people towards the goodness and beauty of Christ? He has a book that's uh, recently released. You can pick up a copy outside called The Eternal Current, How a Practice-Based Faith Can Save Us from Drowning continues to create resources to help others flesh it out. He's married to Shauna uh, Nequist, who's also an author in her own right. They have two sons, Mac and Henry. And so I'm going to pray for Aaron. I'm going to read a passage and then pray for him and ask you to welcome him as he comes. So uh, the passage that we're going to look at comes out of um, John chapter 8. So if you would stand, uh, if you're able to reverence the reading of God's word. To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, If you hold my teaching, you're really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, a slave is no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, that you are looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. I'm telling you what I've seen in the Father's presence, and you are doing what you have heard from your own father. This is the word of the Lord. You know, very often when we gather together, especially when we start singing together, um, things can accidentally tip into a little bit of a pep rally. And there is a time to stand on our chairs and sing and dance. That is very, very much in the Psalms. But I so appreciated the depth of this morning, and especially in the world that we find ourselves. Um, So, I mean, you guys are so um, blessed to be led by someone who doesn't want to just get you fired up, but wants to invite you into the deep streams. I also want to say that uh, the Lord's Prayer with gestures. Um, Justin and I learned that together from the same guy, Father Michael Sparrow. And so our community has been praying that with the gestures also. And in fact, I brought it home. And I have a 12-year-old and a 7-year-old, Henry and Mac. And we, and if we can rope Shauna into joining us, uh, pray it almost every night uh, as we're kind of praying before bed. And it has become a holy experience. And so it's really fun to feel like I'm like your family, you know, a bunch of strangers, but your family. We get to do this together. So thanks for inviting me. Um, let's jump in. The text that was just read, um, probably the first verse you recognize. It's a very um, well, often quoted passage that where Jesus just says, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Something you've probably heard many times, something I've heard many times, but the reality is I haven't often known what that actually means. 
Like, it sounds great. No, you'll know the truth. The truth will set you free. Yes. What does that mean, and how do I do it? And so what I'd love to do is spend, our, spend uh, most of our time this morning just looking at that opening statement of Jesus and asking two concrete questions. The first one is, if you hold to my teaching, what is Jesus teaching? What is he talking about? What is Jesus teaching? And the second question is, what does it mean to hold to the teaching? What is Jesus teaching? And what does it mean to hold to this teaching? And so I thought we would begin um, with a little interaction that Jesus had uh, recorded in Luke 10. And um, the text just reads, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus replied, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So where does the way of Jesus begin? What is the foundation? What is the center of the center? Love. Love. Love God love each other. Jesus later said, on these two commandments, hold all the entire law and all the prophets. Love, love God, love our neighbor. And again, similar to what I said at the beginning, I think we'd all say, yeah, love is a good thing. Fantastic. Great. What does it mean? Does it mean just kind of feel warmly about everyone? Does it, feel, does it mean only smile, never frown? Does it mean, what does it mean to love God and love each other? And um, so Jesus, the master teacher, offers us a pathway to live this out. One of the reasons I am still a Christian and still so grateful to be a Christian in spite of so many reasons that we can all name why it's, it's complicated one of the reasons I am still a Christian is Jesus doesn't just tell us to do arbitrary things. He says, let me teach you how to live. Let me teach you how to live it out. And so um, he teaches us what it tangibly looks like to love God and love others. And the clearest articulation of this way is in the Sermon on the Mount. As recorded in Matthew 5 through 7, this is Jesus manifesto for what it looks like to love God and love others. And it begins, as you know, the first 12 verses of this manifesto is commonly called the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes, this, this condensed articulation of the way to love God and love each other. And I thought we would um, look at these verses together and maybe read them um, together. And so I wonder, maybe I'll read the plain text, and then whenever there's bolded, italic, italicized text, we could read those together. So let's begin at the beginning. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, and he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. For they will be comforted. 
Blessed are the meek. They will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be Blessed are the merciful. They will be Blessed are the pure in heart. They will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. pathway to become the kinds of people who can love God and love each other. And many have said the Sermon on the Mount, the next three chapters, are basically Jesus fleshing out the Beatitudes, these nine invitations, just fleshing it out. Um, You know, Jesus talks about blessing our enemies. Jesus talks about forgiving from the heart. Jesus talks about a life of prayer. Jesus talks about our love for God being directly tied with our love for the other, especially the poor and the oppressed, and on and on. And Jesus fleshes it all out. But then he gets to the very end, and he says something so interesting. Can we see this slide? This is the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus ends, okay, this is his manifesto as recorded. And the very end, Jesus says, therefore, after hearing all this, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. The rain came down. The streams rose. I wish I had it memorized, but I I don't. And the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. And then the writer just says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. It's almost like Jesus said, you know, (laughs) this is like Jesus dropped the mic moment. Boom. If you've heard my words, if you put them into practice, you will survive the storms of life. And if you hear my words and don't put them into practice, when the storms come, and they will come, um, your house may be swept away. I find this fascinating. I grew up in Sunday school where we sang, like, the wise man build his house upon the rock. Anybody? Anybody with me? Okay, good. I thought I would. And, you know, so this was always a cute story. And then it was just in the last couple years that I realized what Jesus is doing here. Jesus did not say, if you hear my words, it's like building your life on the rock. 
Jesus didn't even say, and this is hard for me. I grew up very like religious where everything was about correct beliefs. Jesus didn't say, if you hear my words and believe they're true, you're building your life on a rock. Jesus said, if you hear my words and believe they're true and put them into practice, it's like you're building your life on a foundation that when the storms come, it won't be knocked down. This idea of not just Jesus wanting beliefs, but Jesus wanting engagement, our lives. That's why it's so compelling to pray the Lord's Prayer with our whole bodies. Our faith is not an intellectual exercise. It's an invitation. Um, you know, he mentioned the, the, the book that I just finished, and the subtitle is How a Practice-Based Faith Can Save Us from Drowning. It's from this passage. And in it, I just say, Jesus didn't say, here is the truth, believe it. Jesus said, I am the truth. Follow me. Join me. Let me teach you how to live the invitation is participation. The invitation is participation. So when Jesus, Jesus is saying, hold to my teaching. Jesus is saying, put my words into practice or align your actual life with my way. And then the truth will set you free. Align your life with my life, through the power of the Spirit, and it'll be like you're building your life on rock. So when the storms come, it will stand. Now just to be really clear, and I'll say this a couple times in the next few minutes, we don't set ourselves free. This is not what the Pharisees were trying to do, which is, if I, if I follow all the rules, God, who's up on a cloud somewhere, kind of stingy, will say, well... Yeah, I guess he was pretty religious. I'll bless him. I'll bless her. She did all, she said all the right things. I will, that is not what we're talking about. Only God can set us free, and it is only a gift. Our job is to hold to Christ's teaching in the power of the Spirit, and then let God do what God's been trying to do all along. All right, um, let me tell you kind of a ridiculous little analogy. This may be helpful, or this may be totally unhelpful, but it just happened. I have a seven-year-old. He's, oh, we have a 12-year-old and a seven-year-old. His name is Mac. He embodies all that you think of with the youngest child in a family. He is a wild man. He loves to perform. He loves to... He is hilarious. He's always making jokes. He wants to be at the center of the action. He's full of life. He's amazing. For Halloween, he decided he wanted to be a policeman. I, I was, okay, very surprising. I thought he'd want to be a clown or something. That, you know, he wants to be a, a policeman. And what we realized is I think he always feels like he's at the mercy of everyone else, and he loves the authority. Like, so he just kind of walks around the house. And so what he, his favorite thing to do was to take those little plastic handcuffs and handcuff dad. And then he just had all the power over me. And what he would do is he'd hold the key and he'd say, dad, this key will set you free. 
And so you just kind of wander around and I'd be like, oh man, you know. But in context of what we're talking about, I was just thinking this morning, like what if I said, what if I'm handcuffed and I say, well, I believe that's correct, Mac. That key will set me free. Wait, I'm not free yet. Believing about the key does not release the chains. Believing that that would probably help me does no good until I say, hey, buddy, <laughs> can I have the key? And he gives me the key. I find a way to receive it. And then I put the key into practice. And I'm set free. I know it's kind of a ridiculous analogy, um, little plastic handcuffs with a seven-year-old. But there's something about the difference between believing it's true and wondering why I'm still in chains. And then finding a way to receive the gift. I don't earn it. I couldn't get myself out of these cuffs, but I was able to receive the key and put it into practice and be set free. So let's get really practical. Um, if you don't have a seven-year-old who thinks he wants to be a, a policeman, um, how do we become the kinds of people who can hold to Jesus' teaching? And there are a number of really important answers to this question. I mean, humility, community, um, engagement and solidarity with the poor. I mean, there are a number of reasons. And honestly, sitting there listening to what you guys are doing as a community, you are diving into this way. It's so compelling. But one of the central pathways that I want to talk about is spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines. And that's one of those words that sounds overly pious and overly like Christian-y. But um, Dallas Willard, who is a brilliant philosopher and Christian writer who I've learned so much from, he just observed a discipline is any activity within our power that we engage in to enable us to do what we cannot do by direct effort. Any activity within our power that we engage in to enable us to do what we cannot do by direct effort. Or maybe for today, we could expand that a little bit. Uh, Maybe our working definition this morning is a spiritual discipline is any activity or posture that helps us not just hear Christ's teaching, but helps us hold to that teaching in the power of the Spirit until it leads us to freedom. Or said another way, a spiritual discipline is anything that helps us align our lives with the way of Christ. So maybe I'll, let me just re-say what I said a minute ago. Spiritual disciplines don't cause God to do anything. Again, it is not this religious earning. I'm going to do these things and then God has to do what I want. God is all, thank you, yes. God is already trying to pour blessings out on us. Spiritual disciplines, it's like we're standing in a waterfall and this is our natural state. And the water is, a blessing is pouring over us. 
Spiritual disciplines are nothing more than to receive it, to get swept up in the blessing that God is already pouring. Spiritual disciplines don't cause God to do anything, but spiritual disciplines open us to the grace through which God can do everything. And so I'd love to, um, I mean, end our time together. I want to teach you a very concrete spiritual practice, a way that we can open ourselves up to what God's already doing, a way that we can not just hear Jesus' teaching, but hold to Jesus' teaching, to put it into practice and be set free. Um, But maybe I could just tell you the story of where this came from, and maybe you relate a little bit to this. Um, My wife and I have not faced some of the, the truly kind of catastrophic heartbreaks of, that a number of our friends have faced. Um, but we've had some. And one in particular happened a number of years ago when my wife and I were on staff at a church together. And over the course of just a couple days, my wife got into some hard conversations with our boss which she thought we were just going back and forth. And that Friday afternoon, he said, hey, uh, you're done here. Clean out your desk. It's over. And we were shocked. We were horrified. We were sad. We were pissed. We were all the things. We were all the things. And I still remember sitting in the all-staff meeting where our boss is explaining to the community why my wife just got fired from a church. And I'm just staring holes at the floor, trying to figure out, do I, do I flip a table? Do I burn the church to the ground? Do I, like, what am I going to do? And so when that meeting got done, she got in her car and went home. I walked down the hall back to my office to prepare the worship set for that Sunday. I had to lead that Sunday. It was just this tumultuous Over the next couple days, couple weeks, my hurt turned to deeper anger. And the anger started to turn toxic into hate. I hated him. I wanted to, I wanted him to know that. (laughs) I wanted, and you know, what's that saying? Um, Unforgiveness is like drinking poison, hoping it hurts someone else. I was, I was just, I had a six-pack of poison that I was just working on all day long. I was so angry. And here's the thing. I knew Jesus' teaching. I had been in church a long time, and I knew Matthew 5, part of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, love your enemy and hate your, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. I knew this verse. I believed it was true. But I did not have a concrete practice to help me hold to this teaching. And so just believing it did not set me free. In fact, I was in a tailspin that I could not get out of myself. 
And so there are a couple um, moments of grace. Thank God that God does not give up on us, even when we're tailspinning. But one of them was a meeting I had with my spiritual director, Father Michael, who taught us the, the gestures. And I was sharing my, my, my rage and my hurt. And, and we talked about this verse. I said, I know I'm supposed to love this person. I know I'm supposed to pray for him. I, I don't want to do that. <laughs> and then I said, and even if I did, I, I wouldn't even know what to do. And he said, can I teach you a simple practice that helps you pray for this person? And so he told me, he taught me this four-part practice. He said, you begin by in God's presence, pouring out your heart and telling God exactly how you feel about this person. I mean, think about some of the Psalms where the psalmist is raging and God can take it. So step one is just getting it all out. Step two, in God's presence, tell God what you imagine bothers the other person about you. Try to put, if they were praying this prayer, what might they say about you? I hate step two. I don't want to do that ever. But it's part of, the, part of this practice. Step three, we put Jesus' words into practice and we pray for this person who has become like an enemy. And not like that God would fix them or make them trip or humiliate them. That God would bless them. That God would bless their marriage if they're married. That God would bless their kids if, if they have kids. That God would bless their lives. And then step four, pray for ourselves. Just say, God, I don't know what to do. I feel like this hurt is going to take me under. Would you help me? Would you help me hold to your teaching? Would you help me hold to your teaching until you set me free? And so Father Michael got done kind of teaching me this. And I was like, oh, man. I said, okay, Father Michael, I, I will find time this week, and I'm going to pray this prayer. And he leaned forward in his chair, and he goes, let's pray it now. <laughs> And I looked at the window, um, second floor, so I thought, I can't jump out the window. Um, and he led me through this prayer in this office with him. And did it magically fix everything? Of course not. Did it begin a healing process that about a year and a half later led to my wife and me and this boss having Mexican food together, talking about this experience, and exchanging words of forgiveness. Thanks be to God, it did. So here's what I would love to say to you this morning. Let's do it right now. Let's do this right now. If you have anything in your hand, if you have a, a purse or a phone or paper, if you put it on the floor.
how many of you right now are looking at the exit? <laughs> I want to invite you to put both feet on the floor. Sit up straight, not like rigid or, you know, but just open. If Father Michael was leading this, he would say, say to God with your body what you're saying with your heart and your mind right now. So maybe you want to hold your hands open or maybe you want to put both hands on your lap or I don't know if you want to lift your head or if you want to bow your head. But maybe we can begin by just taking two deep breaths, a deep inhale, deep exhale. And another deep inhale, deep exhale. And just be reminded again that we are already fully immersed in the loving presence of God. God is already here. God is closer than the air we breathe, already working to set us free in every direction. And so in these couple minutes together, we'll take maybe seven or eight minutes to do this. We want to put, we want to hold to Jesus' teaching to love our enemies, to pray for them, to align ourselves with God's love for them. And so the first, the first step would be, who do you feel God nudging you to pray for right now? Is there someone in your life that if you're honest has become like an enemy? To you, some sort of broken relationship, some sort of something happened either this morning or 20 years ago. Who is God bringing to mind? Spirit, would you guide us as we pray? We trust you. We are open to how you want to lead us because we believe you want to set us free for the sake of our lives and for the sake of the world. So let's begin with step one. I want to give us just one minute of silence for us all to pour out our heart about this person and about this situation. In God's presence, tell God exactly how you feel. You don't have to clean it up. You don't have to use religious language. You just have to pour your heart out as one friend speaking to another friend. What happened? 
What did they do? How did you feel? Where are things right now? Take this minute and pour out your, your heart about what has been hurtful about this person that you're praying for. Holy Spirit, guide us. Once you've shared what you have to share, would you just take a moment and listen? How do you sense God responding to what you've just shared? Let's move on to step two. Would you take a moment in God's presence and tell God what you imagine that other person might say about you? How might they tell this story? What would they share with God as they were praying for you? Just take a moment with God and try to articulate a couple things that you imagine might be said. Holy Spirit, please guide us as we pray. you've shared again, just listen. Does God want to respond to say something? Maybe God just wants to be with you in what you've shared. Let's take a moment and listen. To be open. Step three, this is the most concrete practicing of Jesus' words. When we pray for our enemy, 
And I want to give us, again, one minute to begin to articulate some prayers for them. We're not justifying what they've done. We're not excusing it. We're not watering, washing over it. But we're naming the image of God in them as God's image is in everyone. And we're agreeing with God's love for them. So take a moment, if you can, and try to articulate a couple prayers of blessing for this person. Holy Spirit, this is such a tender prayer. Would you guide us? Would you guide us? Once you've prayed for them, again, would you just pause for a moment and listen? Is there anything God wants to say in response to what you just prayed? finally would you pray a prayer for yourself for your own life for your own heart would you pray that Jesus would help you to hold to his teaching so God can set you free would you pray for the grace that you need Holy Spirit, would you guide us now as we pray for ourselves? Finally, one last time, once you've prayed your prayer, would you just be still and listen? What might God want to say to you in response to what you just prayed?
Most gracious God, we thank you that you have not given up on your world and you've not given up on us. We thank you that you are actively working to set us free. And not just us, but even our enemies. To set this world free through your power. And so God, we humbly ask that you would teach us, that you would continue to teach us how to hold on to your teaching how to open up our hands to the grace that is already flowing. And we pray even now as we turn toward your table and as we open our hands to receive these elements, these reminders of who you are and what you are doing to redeem and restore this world. Even in this moment, we would we would hold on to your teaching, to your power, to your mercy. And even this morning, you would begin to set us free in a way we previously hadn't dared to dream. We believe you are that good. We believe you are that strong. We believe you are that full of love. And so God, we pray in the name of the Father. We pray in the name of the Son. We pray in the name of the Holy Spirit. And everyone agreed and said,